This podcast is made possible by the support of our friends at Makeup Designery. For over 20 years, they've educated makeup artists around the world. Many professionals today are MUD graduates. By supporting them, you're supporting this podcast. Check them out at mud.edu. Hi, I'm publisher Michael Key. Welcome to the Makeup Artist Magazine podcast, a show where we have candid conversations with the leaders of the pro makeup world about their art and the pain and glory of working in a creative industry. This episode is with Rocky Cazetti, makeup artist, photographer, innovator, and educator. His multifaceted career spans three decades and includes years on the road with Pat McGrath, and contributing to numerous brands, including Mac, Ket, and he is the founder of his own brand, Gazette. I am here with my good friend Rocky, and we are in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, about ready to do IMATS Atlanta, and we're we're pushing back everything. We're taking the time to set and have a chat and be able to, to, to share with you guys. Why did you become a makeup artist, and at what age? Why did I become a makeup artist? Uh, I would just look at female bone structure. And as an artist, from the moment I could see, I could see the light and the shadow, the sculpture. I would watch my mom do her makeup. And I would think there's something to that. And I just loved that way that a woman could adorn themselves and then I wasn't seeing that in male role models. So that stuck with me, and I did other things. I took leather shop in junior high. I studied photography in junior high. I played sports. I did all different things. I worked uh, for firewood business, chopping down trees. I did all of that. And at the end of the day, 10th grade in high school, they said that I could take an ROP program and get a pale grant from the state and I wouldn't have to pay it back. Nice. And so I thought, oh, I got to do that. So I looked at the different curriculums and then there was cosmetology. At the time, this was 1983, there were not makeup schools. Maybe there was something in London or in New York, but I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I thought, well, that's beauty oriented. And when I read the school's curriculum, they said there was makeup involved. So I kind of cheated. I thought there would be more makeup involved and there was not. But I had already been drawing since I was little. And that was kind of a way to bridge the gap. And so that's been really the only education that I've done is through cosmetology. Did you go the whole program? Did yep. you stay for the whole thing? Yeah. You probably have told me you've done this and I, I had forgotten. It's, I'm actually really glad you're sharing this because people, especially young people, they see you at your level and, and anyone that's successful and think, wow, okay, that's how they got there. And everybody has a beginning. And it's usually a humble beginning. There's a few of those lucky schmucks that just 
born with a silver spoon in their mouth. But most everybody else with artists, there's, they're just normal human beings that found their path, to kind of use your word, found the path. And so what was the next step after graduating cosmetology school? So from there, I had more schooling to do, but I would not stay away from doing every girl's makeup on my block, in my neighborhood. I only had like a couple of items from thrifties. You know, that's like a small drugstore chain in California. And there were no makeup brushes. I would use my brushes for painting and I would cut some of them with my hair cutting scissors. There was not an angled brush for brows at the time. So I just cut one of those brushes and then I was able to have like an angled brow brush. And so I just couldn't stay away from it. And the more I did it, it was almost intuitive because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any formal training. But I know I could see the energy shift in everyone I did it on. They would look in the mirror and they would be like, wow. So I never thought you could make any money at it either. There were only two people that I knew of at the time was Wei Bandy and Serge Luton. Because I knew who Serge was because I would go through Macy's and I would see the Shiseido cosmetic ads. And then I researched and found out who the artist was behind that. Did you have Wade's Bandy's book? Did you? Um, that was one of the early books that was out there. Yeah, I remember it. And someone that I knew had it, but I never owned it. So that's how I knew. I'm picturing you in the Bay Area doing this. Cause I always think of you such as a New York guy. I know. And so, and I, I knew that you came up someplace else, but to do that. And were you doing the whole club scene at that time? Was that, did that happen? I, was. In, I didn't know if that happened in the Bay Area at all. Yes. The same Big way. club scene. So you were leading into something. So I started out doing drag makeup and working with photographers. So at, you know, at 18, I promised myself, okay, I got to stop taking allowance from dad. I got to figure something out, make my own money. <laughs> and so I started freelancing mm -hmm. and I was working with photographers. Well, mind you, I had a pretty good understanding. I learned photography. I learned how to develop in a dark room. I already know light and shadow and composition. So I would go to work with photographers and I could, I just had to shut up and sit back and just take it, whether they knew what they were doing or not. And most of the time they were not impressing me. Um, I did that for a couple of years and, but I was still living at home with dad and I was building a portfolio, but I, I was getting a little like pissed off that, um, the work wasn't great. So half of the pictures I would take, I wouldn't put into my book. So I moved on from there and then I finally got a job. I had to go like to Mace, um, Emporium Capwell, downtown San Francisco. I tell this story on stage all the time. I went to Human Resources because I heard there was an opening at Shiseido. And because of Serge, I thought, I'm going to go work for that brand. And so when I got to Human Resources, they said I had to fill out an application. Well, 
I turned white as a ghost. I know. <laughs> that was a little I didn't know what an you. application was. <laughs> they asked me, do you have a resume? I went, ah. That's I didn't know what a resume was. And so I filled out the application the best I could. Mind you, I've always had a way to be free and or use the ego when necessary. So by saying use the ego, in an interview, when you're on stage, you have to use that part of your ego. Usually I'm not, never been that comfortable talking boasting about myself. But right now I had to. So I must have told a great story because they hired me. And they said, you don't have any makeup experience. I said, I'll show you. And they said, yeah, we don't have time for that today. And I was, I was like, okay. Uh, so touche. you meant, to, you meant you're going to do the makeup or you're going to show them photos? I could have done both, but they just shut me down. They said, we're, we're going to give you a job at the fragrance counter. You're going to have seven lines to take after. And I said, I'll take it. And so on my first day, they told me that I had intercell commission. So I would make 15% commission. No matter what cosmetics I sold in the whole department, I said, that's it. I'm taking advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, well, now you could, I mean, I'm thinking you're over in fragrance. What are you going to do with that? Here, smell this. You know, I mean, yep. it, that's, there's not a whole lot going on yeah. with that. So I did really good there. Um, I would dress up in a suit. I was into vintage suits. I told yeah. you, like, I had a whole vintage thing. That was a whole other life. So yeah. I would dress up and finger wave my hair. And, and I actually looked the part, so... Women at the time would walk up to me and go, oh, my God, you look like Raymond Navarre, Raymond Navarre, um, Rudolph Valentino. So I would get their attention by the way that I looked visually. And then I would start layering the fragrances and I had really good sales. But as soon as we got done there, I'd say, I would love to uh, fix your makeup. Let's go try a lipstick. And I would go, boom, right to the Shiseido counter. And then I was having huge sales over there. So when the opportunity arose for an opening, they whispered in my ear, next week you're starting over at Shiseido. <laughs> Which is good, because that's where you needed to be. Yeah. And you had a lot of faces. That's great that you're, you're doing that. And so that, that just, you just keep constantly getting more, more faces in your chair, which is a fantastic way to learn. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. It does help when you look the part that people, you know, they make the decisions based on the way that you look. Yeah, this is what I teach people all the time. Like, people are not only looking at you visually, but they're listening to what you say, your body language. And so, you know, I sat on an IMAT stage maybe two years ago, the, the industry panel, artist industry panel mm -hmm. that you conducted. And the last question was, where do you get your jobs? Where are you referred from? And and I heard some negativity, some boasting, how I never sleep and I'm constantly knocking down doors and I do this and I do that. And I was almost disgusted by the time it got down to me. But it really made me think. And I thought, this isn't even about me, but it's about my character. 
because most of my referrals are through friends that know my work ethic. They know my skills. And so on that stage, I was actually like holding in getting emotional because I had to think like, how do you get jobs? And it's because people believed in me. The people that walked up to you at the cosmetic counter believed in you because they saw your look and they thought, well, this guy's savvy. He's has, he's making astute choices about what he's doing. So that might be somebody that I would want to advise me. I remember a time I was in a room, we did a press junket and there's all, there's a lot of experience that was in the room, but I was the youngest guy there. So some of the actresses would come to me because I was younger, maybe might've been perceived as more hip, but I'm looking around the room and going, they have no idea. These guys are so much better than me, <laughs> <laughs> but they just come because the way you look. And yeah. in the beginning, that is one of the advantages for youth, don't you think? That's one of yeah, youth absolutely. has to have some advantages in some places. Yeah. You know, it could span age even. If you're open to receive, people feel that. And I think um, nowadays, you know, you could look at where we're at now in the makeup industry. We have veterans and then we have these new new kids that are doing makeup. And I hate to say it, but sometimes the veterans, the older they get, the more resistant they get. And the young ones are so open that I, I'm seeing friends of mine that I love. They're getting resistant, wondering why they're not getting clients or keeping clients. And these new kids that are just happy, open to receive, wanting to do makeup and available... They're getting jobs, and, and some people are being passed by. So it's something that I'm sensitive to in this industry. It's like, I want to stay true to my heart and not get jaded, remember where I came from, why I do this. And it's because I want to connect with people. Mm -hmm. You brought up something I think it would be kind of nice to explore that because you, you're right. We, we do see that. That's part of the the trappings of as you get older is that you get set in your ways and that you're not being as open. What do you do to make sure that you stay relevant and that you are not getting caught into that trap? I meditate. So meditation is a way for me to just stay tuned in to my inner self, my real self. Um, and then also, I don't feel necessarily that I need to be relevant anymore because <laughs> I've done all that work. And so I don't really actively seek clients anymore. Mm -hmm. After 30 years, I created the brand. We could talk about that later. But that set and my attention is there in creating great products. And I'm doing the photography. So nowadays I'm just looking for pretty girls that I can photograph, help them build their portfolio. It's a win-win for both of us because that, you know, paired with Instagram, we all win in that situation. So my focus is there. So if you're saying I'll take the relevance out of the context that we're speaking, I've, I've altered it a little bit. But even with your brand, you're having to be relevant too. You're having to make choices yeah. on what the products you're creating, and it, all of that. It's still, it's still Absolutely. about being relevant. Yeah. If you if you're making products for 
someone 10, 15 years ago, then then that's that's going to be a diminishing yeah. market. Well, then I'll talk about product development on that point because actually let me back up on that one mm-hmm. because because I, I do want to talk about that i want to know why you created the brand yeah well um that's what i was leading into i was doing product development for other brands i worked at mac i was a regional trainer in new york and they brought me to new york in 97 to open the first mac pro and then i moved on from there and so we were as trainers we were assisting product development in testing products, doing product evaluations, and then bringing the products to the stores. And then from there, I started doing product development. I first worked with a brand called Real Cosmetics, and then I went on from there, and I co-created Ket Cosmetics, and then I went on from there, and I did some consulting with Danessa, and then I, and so I'm constantly, all of those years, I'm finding out how to source ingredients, where things are made, how things are made, you know, how to cut out the middleman and how to develop a brand and create a brand. There's many components. And after many years of doing that, and then also with working with Pat McGrath and when she had the Procter and Gamble campaign doing assisting her in that same product development arena. Then I start to find out where the labs are, who specializes in glass packaging, where to get the paper boxes made, da 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 da. So after 20 years of this knowledge, I put it to use. I got tired of serving others in their higher good, I say. So after a while, I thought, wow, I'm helping her create a brand and her create a brand and him create. Like, what am I going to do, me? And so. In 2008, I decided I want to make makeup brushes. And so I created the first range, which was 13 brushes. And at the time, I was not a believer of synthetic fibers. I used to say, Barbie got a haircut. Every time I would look at the brush, it looked looked dead, rigid, false, all those bad things that a true artist would be skeptical about. I was that artist. And I thought, there's no way that plastic could pick up the pigment and blend it the way my blue squirrel does. Well, after years of research, you know, we've come a long way, baby, since that Barbie got a haircut brush. And now fibers are superior to natural fibers. I learned the hard way. In the way that pleases me. And so I ended up creating what I say is the first vegan, 100% vegan range in 2009. That set the pace for everything. So with that knowledge, then I'll back up in the years just a little bit. In the year 2000, I was blessed to be able to do a series of focus groups with Sony in Connecticut. They have a camp called Very Camp. And the FCC mandated that all televisions across the United States would go high def, digital. It was originally 2006, I think, or 2003. Don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. It was extended for many years. Well, so they brought in me to go in, test makeup, 
under high def cameras. The high def cameras were not released yet. This was for cameramen that would be behind them. So they're learning how to use these new, this new technology. So I brought my best kit. I did my best work. It looked beautiful to me. I remember walking from Studio A in the broad daylight in the summer in Connecticut, Studio A to Studio B, and I thought, oh, my model's makeup looks so good. She looks flawless. That's amazing. I ended up doing airbrush makeup on one side and doing traditional makeup on the other. I brought a lot of different things like mineral makeups because that was the new Mm -hmm. mainstream marketing phase. And then I brought traditional foundations and powders as well. I wanted to see what everything looked like. So the model got in front of the monitor. The monitor was maybe, it was huge. I never saw a monitor that big. Maybe it was only like 70 Yeah, but inch, for the time. But it was huge to me. So she sits on the chair, and from the back of the room, you hear this makeup artist go, <gasps> so, Really? Yes. It was devastating. It changed everything that I do. The, the side of the face. Mm-hmm. So I did sections of the face. So I applied mineral makeup to one-fourth. That looked ultra shiny because it's reflective. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, mainstream marketing decided they would put mica as the base in powders, which is like a mini little reflector crushed mm-hmm. up that the naked eye couldn't see anymore. So it looked great to me in the sun. Mm-hmm. So I learned that day that... Makeup had superseded the way that I see makeup. And then I had to surrender and change what I was doing. Then beneath, um, I powdered with Studio Fix from MAC that we all used to use back then. And that's a powder foundation. It's a little stronger. That looked like the moonscape. The thing that looked the best was airbrush makeup. Hmm. And this was Kit airbrush makeup because at the time I was working on developing that with Sheila McKenna. And so that was the biggest change in my entire career, was having that. And so when I went on to create Ket with Sheila, we used this technology to our advantage. And when I went on to create Cosette, I even had more experience in creating complexion. Formulation was the most important thing. And there were two factors that I would pay attention to. One were mattifiers would texturize. Mm-hmm. So I was going to be very cautious about how I was creating more and more texture on the skin. And then the other were reflectors. So anything that was shiny, we used to put it on with a big brush before and highlight, and the lens had Vaseline on it. It had been cleaned, that lens, and now the whole entire face looked like a glitter ball. So you have to just be very strategic. So now with my brand, the way that I've created it, the complexion is texture minimizing and age defying. And that is where technology is now. And you could see it on your local news. Well, it's that thing of trying to, if you create opacity, opacity is usually going to reveal texture. Mm -hmm. Like doing inside corner of an older woman's eye that can be you're trying to 
color correct, but then you now you've brought all this. Yeah. You're bringing attention to the wrinkles yeah. there. Yeah. So we can no longer afford heavy makeup. I say to makeup artists now when I teach, you could. There's two ways to apply foundation. You could just get a butter knife from your kitchen, and you could just slather on the foundation. You can cover it all up, or you could use color theory techniques, and you could neutralize unwanted color. And you could have maximum impact and look like beautiful skin. Well, that's the difference between someone who has the knowledge to do it versus you know someone who does not. And so the, but it's still. I think what you did was really brave to create a brush line. It's like you and I both know that you know there is. It's a crowded market. It's a crowded market out there. There's a lot of brushes, a lot of things to be had, and at prices that. We didn't have in the 90s. It was a completely different ball game. You could get away charging for really expensive, you know, for a brush and you get away with it. But now we got you know, a lot of people that are the manufacturers or we're getting closer to the the end user, to the to the manufacturer. We're cutting out a number of people in there, which is and also the market forces competing in that has driven down the price for brushes well you can still spend a lot of money on brushes but for you to create a brush line when you're not a manufacturer you don't you don't have a setup with a factory that's doing that that's (laughs) um so it's it's an interesting proposition what but that didn't stop you from doing that of course not but you were was it the vegan angle? Was that was that what you were thinking? I was eating too much veganaise. <laughs> no, I um, I just started to learn. I'm like the MacGyver of figuring out things, and so I just started to to figure out um, where components were made, and and I believe manufacturing is like. It's a personality, mm-hmm. just like a human being. And you'll have different levels of integrity. And so that was the main focus for me. And that was one of the, the biggest setbacks for me as well. I believe if you're tuned into good, good shows up. You get sidetracked, you turned into bad. That builds momentum, bad shows up. Um, true story. This happened to me. I've had bumps and bruises along the way. The first factory I was working with, um, first year, they did great brushes. They were telling me they were made in the U.S. Um, I was very happy about that because I grew up with a father that wouldn't buy anything that was not made in the U.S., then NAFTA came, and we knew that that whole thing opened up. And, and I believe that when things like that happen, it's always for the greater good. And maybe you won't buy everything from one place, but in other places, they'll specialize in something. So then you, you always want the best. And uh, so after a year's time, I kept pressuring them to tell me the truth. Or the, you know, when you start printing, packaging... And you put claims on there, like I have to be conscious and responsible. Mm-hmm. And so when I started to to pressure them, they admitted they were lying to me, and that the brushes were made in China. And I have nothing against China. 
I have nothing against anything except lying to me. So that was great awareness. And so I had to find another. I thought, I I don't want to deal with people that aren't honest. So I moved on from that. And so I started to, and this is the thing with manufacturing, you have to be smart about it. You have to find three to five sources that are going to make your product Mm -hmm. and then get samples test them, bring that. I, I brought samples. At the time, I was uh, working on Pat's team, so I had like 25 great friends that are like really amazing makeup artists. So I would give out samples of the brushes that I was making and then get feedback, and so that was a great arena to help me test. And so, so. I ended up losing my way, I'll call it, and redoing the whole line. The factory produced, mind you, my brushes are custom. I take shapes, I cut them with uh, clippers, I shape them, and then I send that, and then we produce samples based on my shapes. I cut them with scissors. You'll know my brushes are unique shapes if you compare them to other and what I won't do is just create some funky shape that isn't functional. Mm-hmm. And so after this journey of looking for a new co-creator, I was pissed off. And when you deal and you build momentum in that negative space, what do you attract? Negativity. So I redid 25 brushes The whole production was held up in customs, and they arrived the morning of IMAT's New York. And I literally had my staff go to the show, and the booth was all set up. And I sat while I begged FedEx to send that driver to me now with the and they were on the truck but they were like oh well we don't know it might come on monday stressful I, yeah oh yeah i know i have nerves of steel because i i've lived through those moments so i showed up i just took from each you know this is <laughs> 80 boxes or something crazy took a hundred from each put them in those blue ikea bags and jumped in a taxi and i ended up at the show well we had a great weekend. That was okay. The brushes were not the right color. The integrity was lost from the sample to the mass production. And so I learned valuable lessons. Like, like, And this is why I remind myself to meditate. Like, Go back to that focus. Remember what you want. Because you're going to have plenty of experiences creating with seeing what you don't want. And you don't want to stay in that space very long. And so that's what it is. And I've, I've lived. So mind you, after that weekend, I meditated real hard. And I'm not kidding you. After about a week's time, a factory reached out to me. I don't know how they got my information. They are who I co-create with today. They are phenomenal. 
I get nothing but praise about the brushes. And it was a big lesson that I needed to learn. Your brushes do have a look that, that's you. That, I, you know, I know you did the purple thing that was on there, which, which is very, very you. It's like V. Neal, you know, she has hers in there, that orange thing. And so it's like, you know V's brush when you see it. Yeah. And that's an identity. I think you did, I think you did well by making it a very much a rocky thing and, and make, make it purple and it's a, it's a good look and yeah the way the brushes are shaped are, are really really cool and you've added you know the color line into it which is great i, I think about ralph lauren when he only started his thing was with ties when he got going that's all it was was ties and he built his entire line after having the success of the ties and so i guess it is you have to have a product and then and then you you expand from it. Are you happy with where the brand's going? Yes. Yeah, I'm happy on on many points. One that it's not growing faster than I can handle. Two, I call it cruelty-free consciousness mm-hmm. because I'm doing my best to be conscious about where ingredients are sourced and and how things are made. And so That's really important to me because I want to create things. Some things take an unheard of amount of time. Um, You know, maybe over a year and I keep testing and testing and testing and testing and testing and changing. Because when it gets out there, you know, it's, it's a big investment. And I started my brand, I say this all the time, with like $300. Uh, I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And so this is my father's name above it. And that means a lot. And I want to put good out there. I want to supply people with tools. I want to be proud of that. No, you really do care. I think people care more about, you talk about ingredients. People care more about that today than ever. Yes, they do. It's really, really something. It probably cuts two ways where it's it's helpful that people like that. But when it, as long as it's positive, but then it can be negative as yeah. well. Well, I tell people all the time, go buy Milady's Ingredient Dictionary right now. Go to Amazon. So the worst thing is when you have someone that thinks they're empowered because they read the headline somewhere and then they get negative on it and start pushing it, pushing against, pushing against, and it goes viral. But you need a little book in your hand that gives you the background on the information. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important. Something that's really, that was really eye opening to me was from the beginning of working with chemists, I am hands on. The first lab I worked with was in New York, and I would go there. If the, if the sample process or color matching was taking too long, I'd say, I'll drive up. I could color match it myself. They'd go, okay. Um, they were shocked that I knew so much about ingredients and that I care. They were used to, this is a shock me, they were used to someone coming in to make makeup and just saying, oh, I want a foundation that has this and that, and then walking out the door and paying for it. Wow. And leaving it to them. They weren't used to an artist coming in and having knowledge about ingredients. And 
I was lucky because I studied about ingredients and cosmetic chemistry and then pair it up with the Sony experience, knowing what the payoff of those ingredients would be. Mm-hmm. Also, being a trainer at Mac, you have to study cosmetic chemistry and ingredients to propel that position that you're in. And so all of that over the years are what bring me to today. Why do you think being an artist makes a difference? How is that affecting what you're doing versus somebody who comes out of college and they, somebody says, oh, I like this color. They can pick purple. Why is it, what make? what do you bring to it? Well, it's kind of like being a doctor and being a nurse. Because you hear nurses say this all the time. The doctor goes for school way longer and they have way more authority. And then as soon as they leave the room, the nurse goes, oh, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I've been here in the trenches all these years. I am dealing with the truth. That's you know? true. That is exactly what <laughs> nurses do. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious where you're going to take this because, yeah, nurses do that. They go, oh, what the hell? They don't know. Yeah. So, so if you have two people that create a brand and one's a makeup artist and one has money and is not, I would veer towards the artist that's, that's um, believing in the product more. We're using the products. We're taking the products and stretching them beyond the normal usage. You know, we're using them on different textures of skin, different ages, ethnic backgrounds, climate, all of these things I take into consideration. And then the technology part of it, then viewing it on a high def camera. How does that look? Does that make the 55 year old actress look better? Does she want to rehire you? There's so many factors that when I make the makeup, I think in such a multifaceted, is that redundant? Good. Multifaceted way (laughs) so that I don't want there to be something unforgotten. So I would trust an artist behind a brand first and foremost. How much makeup are you still doing? I'm still shooting all the time. I enjoy seeing your makeups. Thank you. Yeah. So that's that's the joy. I think I'm in the most joyous time now because I'm doing the hair, the makeup, wardrobe. I'm shooting it. I have total control. I used to think by saying, like, you have total control, like that was a negative thing before. Now that I have it, I'm much more pleased because, you know, I worked on teams for so many years and then you would do a makeup and then you'd, they'd go to hair and they'd come back and you'd be like, ooh, they're doing that hairstyle? That wasn't what we talked about. Or the photographer didn't light it the way that we talked about. Or then they turn it over to an editor or try to edit it themselves and then it ruined the whole integrity of the photo by making plastic skin or looking artificial. And so there's a lot of disconnects that make me feel so happy that I have dedicated so much time to take total control. And this is why I teach makeup for photography. You know, there's a lot of people teaching makeup for photography these days. And, um, you know, there's a new hashtag, muographer. And, you know, I hope, these other people that are doing it are doing it justice because there's so much more to it to think about 
than just doing makeup and shooting it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, it's a living, evolving thing where if you handle it right, you could share that knowledge with people that they could then take and span a career and then share it with the future generations. That's my idea of being in my joy right now. Now I just would rather teach. I would rather take that experience and show people right live on set what that feels like. You know, I was just in Dallas and those people there hadn't been on a, most of them hadn't been on a photo shoot before. Wow. So for me to be able to answer the questions right there, you can't ask when when one photographer is shooting. You know, I'm actually stopping the shoot to answer important questions that no one, I didn't get that privilege. Mm -hmm. No one ever stopped to shoot because I needed to know why is the light pointed in that direction against the white wall? What does that do? I was thinking it the whole time. No one educated me on that. So we're in a different time now and I'm just blessed to um, do what I'm doing and I have such a freedom. You know why? Because there's no client directing me to do something that I don't love. So my heart goes out to the photographers, makeup artists, hairstylists, wardrobe stylists that have to take their expanded creativity and put it into a thimble to satisfy others' visual conceptions of what their ideal of beauty. When did you start doing... It seemed like there was one point in time since I've known you, which is 20 plus years now is that you started doing a lot more photography. And I learned something earlier when you said you had learned photography even before you really had learned makeup. Yeah. Which was cool. Um, I actually, it was great when I continued to learn things about people, but when did you start doing that? You seem like you got really proactive about the photography side. Yep. I, um, let's see. You know, seventh grade, made a box camera. I was the kid on campus trying to catch people being bad with my little pinhole box camera. And then I dropped that for a very long time. I was always good at taking, like, family photos, all that. And then in 2000, when I when I did the Sony thing, I got the technology bug... Uh, my father purchased me a camera for Christmas, a Canon. Yeah. And I started shooting again. So when we created Ket, I was doing, I was shooting the products. And then so, and still to today, I do, I do all of the product photography for Danessa Myricks. Mm-hmm. Like you go to her website, every visual you see, I'm working on a big project right now. Um, I shoot it. So I was kind of behind the scenes for a long time. And then every now and then I would get a girl and then I would ask her, are you a model? Do you want to shoot? And I didn't have a portfolio, so it was hard for me to get that going. And then five years ago, I got really serious about it. And then I opened a studio and the rest is history. And so that's where I'm at. You've recently made a move from New York to to Florida. 
Are you just going to be doing the brand from there? Are you going to be continuing? You said you're going to move the photography studio to Florida. Right? Yes. Is that just going to be just for you or would that, would that involve other people, other projects? Me first. <laughs> I've learned a positive way to be selfish. Like, i got to build the place first and then invite people over. But my, my ultimate dream is to buy, buy a plot of land and then, you know, the, the trailers that you could buy? And make into a little, like, on the back of a truck, a trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you could buy those. I want to buy land. I want to make these, like, little bungalows. Maybe start with six. Create, you know, and have a warehouse there and with the photography and everything. I want to create a retreat. And so I'm putting it out there. Oh. I've been putting it out there. Where, because I like when, you know... Not too long ago, last December, I think it was, like um, six young ladies came from Russia to do a one-week seminar in my studio. I love that. So I want to create... I don't need 100 people. I could do that on an IMAT stage. What I do like to do in between are like week-long, really intense... So I'm going to call it a retreat. And so I want to do that. But the thing I am most excited for immediately is that being in Florida with the nature as my backdrop is going to change everything I do. So you'll see very soon uh, I'm going to have a completely different mindset and eye on beauty. It probably will change because, you know, an artist gets inspiration of what you what you surround yourself with. So, yeah, quite the different environment from New York to, to Florida. Yeah. Well, the most exciting thing about it is I have a very stylized indoor. I say I'm a light bender because I'm really into lighting. Mm-hmm. So if you look at my work, it's stylized with light. But now, like with that environment... I think I'm going to look back on my photos now and think, oh, they're so stylized. And I want that to open up. And I hope for all artists that they find that they don't keep themselves too compartmentalized in their art. So I'm really happy that something is going to throw me off. I got a question. I want to answer it in two different ways. Mm-hmm. One people you know, listening to this podcast are artists that are looking at what you do and admire what you've done. I'd like for you to give advice for that. Someone who's wanting to get in that and kind of follow into the footsteps of what you're doing as an artist. And then actually I'll save the second part of the question. Let's just do that. Mm -hmm. Cause I know that you like teaching and you like giving back and, and coaching people. Yeah. What is, what words of advice do you have for new people coming in? Follow your heart. Do your best to deal with the contrast in life. You see, the contrast are your parents, who have those great ideas about who you should be. And then it's society and all the rules and everything that are out there. So my suggestion is to feel your way around. Consider what everyone says and thinks who you should be. But then feel in your heart, like, What part of this do I love? Follow that path. If you don't love it, please don't waste your time. Because once you start to 
know that you're emotionally guided by what you love and you start to go in that direction, then the people show up, the opportunities show up, the jobs show up, the clients show up. And so I've noticed, I say that there's two ways to create by default, and that's just by throwing your hands up and saying, I just handed it over to God, or I'll just wait for the universe. We have all these cliche statements in our lives, and then we just sit back and we wait. So I say create through intention. Don't make it difficult. Write one sentence about what type of makeup you want to do. Who do you want to work with? What type of lighting do you want that photographer that you're dreaming of working with? What type of lighting does he do? Does she do? By creating through intention, you can save a lot of of wasted time and energy by creating with deliberate intention. So that's my advice. As you have free will, you could just throw your hands up and say, I left it to the universe. And then I did this for a long time. And then the good and the bad came. And I always wondered why my path was growing so slow and why I made so many mistakes. But I advise you get a defined intention about who you want to be, where you want to be, what you want to be. And that'll allow a focus. My follow-up question is for those that create brands. A lot of artists see that as their possible lateral move. What, uh, what advice do you have for someone that's wanting to create a brand? Um, well, first of all, know that every idea you have is $10,000. <laughs> Be realistic. That's a, that's a great, great piece of uh, way to look at it. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you have a million dollars to spend, just contact me and I will consult for you because it's, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> but I mean, in the beginning, I think you just have to, to think, you know, with all manifestations, I think, you always have to be realistic. You know, if your mind tells you you want to create 25 things, start with five so that you could focus and create five really amazing products, whether it's a lip category or complexion category. And really do your best. Get that Milady's Ingredient Dictionary Mm -hmm. and study ingredients so that you're empowered, that you're going to create a formulation that is going to be great for all skin types that will give the finish that you want to the naked eye, to the technology. And, uh, and then when it's all said and done, also think in a way that's true to your heart. Like when you go to price things, uh, you could go to business school and then create products without a heart. And then make them very expensive and unattainable. But you could also do it in a way that feels good. So I want you to feel good and realistic about what you're going to create. Keep it to where you believe that it's possible in the beginning. Otherwise, it's not going to manifest. And then create the products that are going to make a difference. The ingredients are going to make a difference. The payoff and the way that they're seen and photographed and filmed are going to make a difference. 
And today I'm here to tell you, if you don't have diversity in that mindset and they're not going to suit multi-ethnic categories, you know, I want you to have that in mind too. And so, and from there, you have to start meditating. That's my advice. So that you could start to believe that these products you put your heart and soul into can be received by people. That's the thing. That's why I call Cosette Beauty cruelty-free conscious. Because I put a lot into it, and I just sit. I don't have to be meditating sometimes. I just imagine that the products will be received positively by people. And so with creating a brand and putting that investment into it, and it takes a long time, a lot of fear could be involved for a new entrepreneur as well. Mm -hmm. And so more advice. Every time you feel fear, go back to the intentions. Replace those thoughts with the reason why you love this. Do you do makeup differently now that you're creating products? Has that changed the way that you that you're applying makeup? Hmm, that's a great question. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I was. I'm doing a lot less mixing now. Having said that, I just created the Matrix mixing liquid, so I'm mixing everything. But I'm mixing less mm -hmm. color theory wise. I mean, come on, in the '80s, <laughs> I was basically carrying around this big kit. It was a brand that no longer exists called Prescription Plus. It was little plastic bottles that had red, yellow, blue, black, and white, a foundation base. I was making the colors on the spot on the client, mixing right there in a beaker. Wow. Okay. And mainstream cosmetics is worse. If you try to get those foundations you put on someone's face, you got to mix. Like you have to be good in color theory. But nowadays, it's a more no-brainer kind of makeup I'm doing, so I'm able to like let creativity flow easier now. How much of uh, of the input did you get from other artists? Uh, how much is it changing what you create? I'd listen. It it changes. Uh, it matters. Everybody's got an opinion. To, um, One person likes less. Other person wants more. So there's that. Yeah. Well, put it this way: with all input, you know, there's all different personalities. So these are people that I know. So if some of them were just people that like to hear themselves talk, eh, I didn't consider what they were saying so much. But if it's the truth, it must be heard. So if someone gave me great advice and I can't deny it's the truth. I'll follow that. I don't create through the ego or to push against anything like that. So I always appreciate good or bad. If it's bad, then it's just a good opportunity for me to look into it deeper. Anything that we haven't talked about that we should talk about? I would love to talk about social media, where that wave has come from and where it's going, because I have a, a lot to say about the new generation. Good. Let's talk about social and, media because uh, you've seen a lot come and go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Where, where you well, see it going? My first comment is to all of us veterans, what did you think was going to happen? You think we just all sit on our ass eating bonbons 
and the generations wouldn't grow up and be just as eager as we are to create, here they are. Surprise. They're completely different kinds of makeup artists, too. They're, they're creating in a way that we never saw coming either. Yep. Um, I look at them. I saw it coming on slowly, and then there was an avalanche, as you know. I'm starting to see the air clear a little bit, I think. How so? What, explain that for me. You know, I was talking earlier about an ebb and a flow to everything. It It feels like it's... Coming down off the flow, down to the ebb for a minute. I'm excited to see what's next. But I'm, I actually get thrilled by seeing these youngsters with that tenacity. That was me when I was 18 and 19 and 20. And so I see myself in that, in one aspect. And then as soon as I turn and then I talk to veteran friends of mine who are so upset and feeling walked over by them some people are a lot of, are very angry about it and i don't feel that i don't share in that i really would like to work with more new artists what i want to do is collaborate with them and not in the hey let's collaborate because that's the thing right now um you know i get i get instagram messages every day saying let's collaborate and um, that means this is just actually when they come straight out and say I would really love to use your products can you send me products I probably do but when it's encrypted it's just not going to happen because that's not real but really what I would love is to collaborate like photograph their makeup on a model not themselves they're already doing that I want them to have a portfolio at the end of the day. Because if they call themselves a makeup artist, but it's only on their face, it's only going to go so far. Only certain people will get on that leading edge and make money from that. But there are thousands and thousands and thousands who need a portfolio. And mm -hmm. so I would love to help in that aspect. So I'm putting the energy out there. I want to, even in like in education, like teach them what's going on in the realm where the clients are looking for makeup artists, you know, the existing clients we know of, maybe they know more about their type of client than I do. We'll all learn together. But at the end of the day, I want to work with them and do, because I hear this too, unanimously through veteran makeup artists. Yeah, they do makeup on themselves, but can they do makeup on a model? Well, let's find out. Mm -hmm. I don't want to judge. What have you not done that you want to do? Open a restaurant bar. That's yeah. at the there top of my list. Do it. Make it happen. Yeah, I will I come. Know. I will come to your restaurant bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to the Makeup Artist Magazine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. If you want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends. This show is available on Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit us online for more great content at MakeupMag.com. I'm Michael Key. Thanks for listening. <laughs>